It's, uh, so it's been a long-standing tradition of mine to not watch the Oscars, not watch award shows. So uh, I was unaware that the Oscars were even happening this past week until I heard that the actor Will Smith, ever gregarious it would seem, fresh prince of Bel-Air, slapped the comedian and host Chris Rock in front of God and everybody for poking fun at his wife's baldness, which is a serious symptom of her alopecia. And then, of course, to no surprise, hordes of journalists and bloggers and those with IVs connected to their Twitter feeds gave it no shortage of their time and attention. Articles were published saying that, well, Smith was justified, or no, this is toxic masculinity that normalizes violence, which, to be honest, I found painfully ironic, uh, that sort of uh, accusation coming from the media and Hollywood. Normalizes violence, right? Smith tarnished the Oscars, and he should be canceled, or no, he showed us how wound tight we are as humanity, and also the beauty of seeking forgiveness, etc., etc., lots of different angles and opinions. Meanwhile, the slap really means little to anyone but Smith and Rock in the grand scheme of things, if you think about it. Just two people whose talent intersected with some really, really good fortune to make them celebrities, which is just an interesting thing. Celebrity is just a weird thing, if you think about it. I saw, um, just sharing a little bit of my celebrity exposure, I did happen to see Rock and Roll Hall of Famer from the 80s, Billy Idol, in the airport once. Don't be jealous. <laughs> I was a bit starstruck. He still had the spike blonde hair, but he was not wearing his readers, apparently, because he was leaning back and holding the, the, what he was reading, kind of his itinerary out here so that he could read it. So... Um, his eyes aged like the rest of ours. In 2005, I actually got to hang out all evening um, in Brooklyn with Matt Berninger. If you don't know him, he's the lead singer of the band The National, Grammy-winning band. Neat guy. Um, they had not been popular or won a Grammy by that point, so it's a nice memory for me, I guess. And just a few weeks ago, the comedian Jim Gaffigan was walking toward us on Park Avenue in New York City. I have not been to New York City in 15 years. And all he was doing was just trying to get his earbud wires untangled. Jim Gaffigan doesn't even have the wireless kind. <laughs> so I said, hi, and he said, hey. And uh, this was an exchange that um, my son, he was interested in. And, uh, you know, he actually ended up saying I did the right thing by not accosting a, uh, a celebrity. I think Heather wished that I had hug-tackled him, but I did not. So. But, you know, celebrity's been around, I mean, probably forever, at least Let's just say since Israel wanted a larger-than-life king for no, no good reason, really. They had judges. They had the direct influence of the Lord's will. But they instead wanted the tall, handsome, neurotic Saul and his violent ego, against which they were warned. Celebrity-making persists in the church. We know this. And that's really nothing short of a huge category mistake. Celebrity in the church. And, you know, I'd actually love to hear an evolutionary scientist offer their theory as to why we've supposedly developed this thing, right? This odd trait that has so little utility. Why do we make celebrities? It's strange. And I think the celebrity is essentially our inability to celebrate human achievement and goodness and giftedness and genius and beauty without making people into demigods. Diverting our need to worship towards someone or something to which we've assigned some transcendence, something beyond us, something greater. So maybe it's actually not that weird 
that we have this celebrity thing. Maybe celebrity is, if only subconsciously, a very strange diversion for our complex hearts and minds that were created, actually, to desire transcendence, to know the holy, the other than, the set apart, to relate closely to the divine. Maybe celebrity is just another kind of homing mechanism in our hearts. We'll settle for our demigods, though what our hearts and minds really want is our God. And I would suggest that when Jesus tells parables, I believe they are fundamentally about recovering this desire that begins in this knowledge of and our connection to God for who He really is. So easily lost. And the details of the parables are often correctives, and they're primarily, but they're primarily intended to show us what God is really like often with our human condition or human players and actors with their myopic sinful compulsions placed in stark relief against this God, or at least our conceptions and how they go wrong. So Jesus' agenda in our parable today, what we call the parable of the wicked tenants, it's the same. At its core, the point is to illustrate the infinite God who, though transcendent, He has acted decisively and acted graciously throughout history and chiefly in the sending of, in the incarnation of His Son to give Himself to us if we will have Him. This is what we really want and need when we want transcendence, I believe. When we want inspiration, when we want beauty, that we might end up hijacking the inheritance, so to speak, in our own way, what we really want is to be heirs be sons and daughters. We want Eden, and we want the God who walked with his people in the cool of the day, though so many of us never realize that's what we want when we want everything else. So let's look at the details of the parable just for a few minutes. What prompted Jesus to tell it? You know, we talk about the literary context. Where does this fall in the story as Luke is telling it? In, in Luke's timeline, he has just basically taken over the temple, overturning tables, right? Staging a standoff for a bit. And he is not allowing anyone to come and go and do the usual busyness of buying and selling animals for the sacrifice. Basically, he has interrupted the evening sacrifice. He's fired up and he's confronting actually the whole manner in which uh, Israel in the second temple era is relating to and, and the way they're portraying God under the leadership of their ascendant authorities. So he's effectively shut it down. And here's the important thing. We arrive at this moment after Jesus has ridden a young donkey into Jerusalem while the people welcomed him with shouts of Hosanna and a blessing. And Luke's telling he goes straight to the temple. There's a confrontation. And in terms of its placement as our reading today in our lectionary, for those of you who don't know, we, we order our readings to tell the story in a particular way through the course of three years. And so in our reading today, Luke 20 actually prepares us for next Sunday. It prepares us for the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday with an eye to where the story is going after that happens. To prepare us to already know, as, even as we celebrate next Sunday, Things are going to take a really interesting and even dark turn, even in the middle of our service and in our readings. You'll feel it next week when our palm-waving and Hosanna shouting take this weighty turn. So Luke 19.47, just backing up a little bit from our reading, it tells us that the chief priests, the scribes, the principal men of the people, they sought to destroy Jesus. But they were frustrated. Why? Because the people were hanging on his words. 
So in verse 1 of Luke 20, they say to him, and this is important, they say to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? And there's the rub. And this is where Jesus begins to answer. The first answer that he gives, he he wants to go back and say, well, you had John the Baptist, and you were unable to discern uh, whether or not his ministry was legitimate. Basically, Jesus says to them, John is an example that you don't really want to know the truth. You just want to control it for your own ends. So he says, basically, I'm not going to answer you. And then he tells the story. But he turns to the crowd, which is important. He turns to the crowd before he turns back to the Pharisees. And this is how he begins. A man planted a vineyard. Right there in five words, Jesus, from Jesus, we're already deep in the imagination of the first century Jewish listeners' understanding. Right in their imagination. We're already there with them. They are actually hearing something familiar because Jesus is invoking Isaiah 5, which is in our reading today. And it reads this. It says, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. And the interesting thing, if you read Matthew's account of this, of this parable, it includes, Jesus includes some details of the preparation. So it's already sounding like Isaiah 5. And it goes on to say, and he looked for it to yield, yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. So it's a metaphor, this vineyard. And then in verse 6, I'll just fast forward a little bit, it says, The Lord of hosts looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So just to summarize Isaiah 5, Israel, the vineyard, had become toxic. You don't eat wild grapes. They're poisonous. These were meant to be the ones that were planted. But something wild has taken over. And Isaiah explains that God himself has provided. He has provided for Israel's flourishing, asking this, what more was there to do for them? We're going to hear this echoed in the parable. What more was there to do for them that I have not done? The purpose and the provision for fruitfulness was clear. It was available. But they became something else entirely. And now Jesus is retelling the story with a new angle. And he often did this with Israel's stories. The parable continues in verse 9. It says he let out or leased the vineyard out to tenants, and he went into another country for a long while, which wouldn't have been unusual, Sending then his servants to give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Bring it back to me. So the labor and the benefits of the vineyard have been entrusted to leaders. But the expected outcome is the same. Fruitfulness uh, and flourishing. The blessing of the world by the descendants of Abraham. This is where this is going. That, that fruit would be born and, and that, the, that grapes would be grown and that ultimately this blessing would be available to all, but it's gone wrong. So shockingly, the renters, um, they send this first emissary that he sends away. With what? Just a beating. And then it escalates from there. They not only beat the next one, but what we read is they shame him in some way, which probably had something to do with making him ceremonially unclean. He came back, and he was in in bad sorts in some way or another, shamed. And the third one leaves wounded. And the Greek word for that is traumatizo. Sound familiar? It was a deep wound. It was significant. It was probably crippling. It probably changed his life. They wounded him badly. 
So now how will the owner respond? How will the owner respond? Verse 13, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. And friends, this is the real climax of the story. Not the end when the tenants are cast out and destroyed. The story is actually being told with something very important to, very popular in the oral tradition of that day. It's called ring composition. And so the really attention-grabbing, the emotional part sits right in the middle of the story so that everything else that happens after that just is built together with this ultimate rise and this climax. It's where the real reaction is sparked because if you heard this, you would have said, wait a minute. After all they did, acting like they owned the land and brutalizing and shaming his servants, he's going to send his son? Makes no sense whatsoever. He's going to subject him to that kind of treatment, that kind of shame, and that kind of danger? Who is this? And how crazy is he? So instead of this angry and righteous retribution that was overdue, even at this point, the grieved owner searches his own heart. What shall I do? To the surprise of everyone, here's the one with the power and the law behind him even. He divests himself of it in the hope of wooing these wayward tenants. I'll send my son. Maybe they will respect him. Or more accurately translated, maybe they will feel the shame of this whole thing. Maybe if I send my own son, they will come to their senses. Ken Bailey uh, is a biblical scholar who taught New Testament for 40 years in the Middle East, in Egypt, in Lebanon, and in Jerusalem, and in Cyprus. And he recounts a modern story that he heard from a high-ranking U.S. intelligence official who was serving in Jordan, a story that rings with notes from this parable. And this is the story. The late Hussein bin Talal was the king of Jordan in the late 20th century. And one night, more than 70 of his military officers were meeting to plan a coup and to overthrow the government. So King Hussein's security officers, they requested an operation to surround the barracks and either arrest or kill and end this thing. And after a somber pause, King Hussein said, bring me a helicopter. And he flew to the barracks alone with the pilot. He landed on the roof. And as he was exiting the helicopter, he said, if you hear gunshots, just leave. So the king marched in unarmed. He went down two flights of stairs and he entered the room where they were plotting. And calmly he said, gentlemen, I am told that you want to overthrow this government. If you do this, the army will break apart. We're all going to be plunged into civil war and tens of thousands of innocent people will die. There is no need for this. If you must do it, just kill me first. Then there may, may be no unnecessary bloodshed. And after a moment of stunned silence, as the story was told, all the rebels rushed forward, kissing the king's hands and feet, and pledged their loyalty to him for life. And that king did what? He showed total vulnerability in the face of injustice. No English word captures what he did that day, but there are some other words in, if, coming from that part of the world that do. Uh, nothing captures even what the owner of the vineyard is doing, but in the Greek, this virtue is called makrothymia. And in the Arabic, it's called halim, and that literally means he put his anger far away from him. Justified though it was, he put his anger far away from him. 
And this is a common refrain in the Psalms, you'll find. The Lord putting his anger far away from him. The one with power restrains himself to win his opponent. Through what? Through active mercy. So here's this triple disgrace, the beating and shaming and crippling of his servants, and yet the vineyard owner puts his anger far away, and what does he do? He sends his son. Now how will they react? There's a little depth in there. If you're listening with a first century imagination, they're actually going to seek to uh, take advantage of a ruling that existed in Israel's oral law at the time that says after three years of occupying a property, they could claim it for themselves. We call it squatter's rights. And if the son is coming instead of the owner, maybe, and you know, just using our sanctified imagination, maybe the, the owner is dead. The son's coming, and they say, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. They plan to exercise squatter's rights, like I said, and they've gotten the son out of the picture, except that they're going to drag him out of the vineyard to kill him, which is an interesting thing to do uh, and probably meant that they didn't want to defile the grapes. What a strange sort of contradiction. Now what? The long-suffering owner will finally act swiftly to secure the vineyard for those to whom it belongs. He'll put it in the hands of other tenants. The kingdom, the vineyard, will be given to Jesus' disciples, to his followers, not to the Pharisees and the scribes. It's clear that Jesus was not concerned with the physical land or the temple. He was concerned with the heritage of Israel, with their inheritance, with their calling from God as a holy people who were set apart to worship Him and to make Him known. And now Jesus is declaring that that inheritance is coming through the Son and the heir. In John 15, Jesus will turn again to the imagery of Isaiah 5. Those who follow Him will be part of the renewed fruit-bearing vineyard. He says what? I am the true vine, and the Father is the vine dresser. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. We got Isaiah 5 in the background here, and Jesus becomes God's vine. Jesus becomes that truly faithful Israel. And any who are attached to him are the people of God which is a calling and an invitation and an inheritance given first to the Jews and then to all. But those who, would, who uh, would assume the inheritance on their terms can't have it. Those who would hijack it cannot be joint heirs and beneficiaries with the son he sends. And what happens? The Pharisees are aghast. No big surprise. They say, surely not. But he looked directly at them, it says, and he said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus is quoting Psalm 118, and he's latching on to yet another symbol for Israel. Though all the nations have despised and resisted her, the psalmist declares that Jerusalem is the cornerstone of civilization. And Jesus, though, here in invoking this, is saying that he is the cornerstone. He embodies all the metaphors and the symbols for Israel. Israel's story is finding its climax in the Son whom the Father has sent 
to show them who God really is, to recover the story, to recover the desire and the meaning for all humanity. So here's where the rubber meets the road for us. Because we're not passive observers of some conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's not locked in time, as we might assume. We are participants in a larger story that actually reached its climax in the coming of God's Son to His vineyard, to the world He loves. Jesus is now calling us to be laborers in the vineyard of His kingdom, attached to Him, drawing on Him, to share in the inheritance with Him as heirs, what we always wanted, what we want when we want everything else we have in Christ. To the Colossians who, like us, are just deluged by their own distractions and the confusion of of, of all sorts of spiritual pluralism and cross-pressures and all of that, Paul draws on this same imagery of inheritance when praying for the struggling church, asking that they may be filled, he says, with the knowledge of his will, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So this last full week of Lent, in these words, we the church are called to the question of our inheritance. I mentioned it last week. The Son of God was sent into the cruelty of human systems and of empires and disordered human relationships, and despite our warped sense of entitlement that is just constant, and despite our well-deserved shame, what does He do? And what is He doing now? He woos us to himself. The expectation of this parable and of the Christian hope for two millennia is that we will see the one true merciful and generous God revealed by the Son he has sent. That we will see him for who he really is. That we will see our stake in the world as completely rooted in him and drawing on him. Drawing everything that really matters from him. And bearing our lives back to God. Every Sunday, we're drawn back. We're we're living into this true climax of the sending of the Son. We proclaim the gospel not just, you know, with our imaginations and not just with words, but we proclaim it when we come together and we hear the word, but also we partake of the fruit of what? The vine. To help us remember, to help us recover Every Sunday, we just bring, honestly, we bring our little plot of ground, our little vineyard, so to speak, our lives, our worship to the Lord, which in the end are part of what He has let out to us to be fruitful for Him. And Peter says this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed the last time. This is what we really want. And this is what we want, Father. Help us to desire the kingdom. Help us to see our lives as our part in the vineyard because we are part of you. Because you are feeding us and blessing us and guard our faith in your power as Paul prayed. And help us, O Lord, just to trust in you. Help us to do this together. And as we enter into the drama of Holy Week, help us again to be reminded that you have sent your Son, that all may be well, and that the world may move toward its true destiny, and that we may know you, and we may see you face to face. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
Amen.